Welcome to the Books of Titans podcast, where I seek truth in the world's great books. I'm your host, Eric Rostad, coming to you from the beautiful Books of Titans studio in Franklin, Tennessee. My goal is to read 200 of the great books over the next 10 years and share what I'm learning. I'll talk a bit about each book, tie ideas together from a variety of genres, and share the one thing I always hope to remember from each of the great books. Well, I've spent a delightful past month learning and reading about Egypt, specifically ancient Egypt. So book number two for the Great Books Project was Writings from Ancient Egypt. And so I I started with that book. And then for this project, I'm trying to find at least one guidebook that helps me understand what it is I'm reading, what's the context, uh, when were these things written. So the, the Penguin Classics book, Writings from Ancient Egypt, it's translated by Toby Wilkinson. And there are just a variety of types of writings from, from ancient Egypt. So there, there are hymns in here, there are battle narratives, teaching, so kind of like wisdom, literature. There are some some tales, uh, so some some exciting stories, just uh, everyday legal texts, some letters that were going back and forth, lamentations, and and other other things. So it's a wide variety, you know, nothing like super long. So these are all quite quite short, uh, but just a variety of different types of of texts. And so that that was the first book I read, the writings from ancient Egypt. And then the guidebook I decided was also done by Toby Wilkinson. So the person that translated the writings from ancient Egypt uh, has also written a, a book of history about Egypt, and that's called The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt. And I really wish I would have read this before writing reading the the writings of ancient Egypt, because this provided such a great overview of roughly 3,000 years of history. And, And it really... Had I read this first, I would have been a better able to put into context what I was reading. So if if you are going to start with with uh, uh, some readings from ancient Egypt, I, I do strongly suggest going into a history before you do that. Just if if nothing else, to just provide some context. So I'll, uh, I I I went a little crazy. I again, I was just going to try to do one, one extra book, but I ended up getting six extra books about Egypt. And I loved it so much. I mean, I just had, I had such a great time. Some were art books, some were other books about writing. And there was even one book that was about a specific pharaoh. So I want to go into these different books through this, through this episode, but I just want to introduce each of these, these other books really quickly. And then, and then I'll, uh, I'll I'll move on from there. So uh, the next book is Egyptian art. This is a, a Tashin book, so this is this is full of uh, artwork from ancient Egypt, but it's also uh, descriptions of that of that artwork. After that, I I read one that is called King Tut, and this is also a Tashin book. So this is uh, a lot of photography from the the famous tomb of uh, Tut Tutankhamun, and uh, but it but also got into a lot of of the afterlife and in the the Egyptian view of the afterlife. So after that, I read a book called Akhenaten and the Religion of Light. So this was the one about a particular pharaoh and a very interesting pharaoh. And I can't wait to tell you about him and what I learned about him. The final two books, one is called The Tale of uh, Sinue. probably mispronouncing that, but this is a Oxford World's classic book. And again, this is another one that, that contains a number of different stories from ancient Egypt. But the main one here is the tale of, of Sinue. 
And so that was the second to last one. The last one is a comp another compilation, but this one is called Ancient Egyptian Literature from the Late Period. And I got this one for one particular story. So I only read one story in, in this one, and that's the stories of Setni Kamwas. And uh, that, that was uh, kind of a two overarching stories that uh, that were about Set Setney, and that was excellent as well. So I'll, I'll go into those later in this this episode. But those are the the total seven books that I read about Egypt over this past month. The study of Egypt is the study of civilization. Uh, it it interacted with so many different groups that you've heard about that you know about uh, from from the Romans to the Greeks to the Assyrians, the Persians, uh, the Nubians, the so many different groups like so just learning about Egypt, you're learning so much about the areas surrounding Egypt and the history of of that time. So I can't wait to to read I, I just bought some books about Assyria, uh, Babylon Babylonia. Um, and then also about Persia. And so I can't wait, wait to read those and kind of kind of see it from from their side of it uh, now that I've gotten a, a brief overview of, of the Egyptian side of, of things. So the time the time frame that we're talking about here in this episode is is just astounding. Uh, the start of the pharaohs was in 2950 BC. So that's almost 5,000 years ago. And this, this history lasts until Rome conquers Egypt in roughly 30 BC. So 3,000 years is is mainly what uh, what these books cover. There was there was obviously history before that in in Egypt, uh, possibly as, as much as 4,000 years of of history before we get to the pharaohs in in 2950. Uh, but but the the from when you start having pharaohs, that's 2950 until 30 BC. And so that's, uh, that is just a fascinating history. I learned a lot about that in, in the rise and fall of ancient Egypt book. And the thing that uh, is, is neat is we have so much of this information. I, I was just shocked at how much information we actually have about th this enormous time period. Uh, and, but we get this from temple walls, from coffins, from papyri, pap uh, papyrus, uh, you know, people writing it, um, statues, they, they would, they would have the hieroglyphics on the statues. And then obviously in, in these, these large tombs and, and pyramids we're, but we're, we're, we're talking about a culture where a literacy, the literacy rate was only five to 10%. So very few people read. And if you, if you read and could write, you were, you were part of the elite. And so part of what you're reading in, if you're reading these ancient stories are some of them probably were stories that were heard by, by people and they were read aloud and that sort of thing. But, but some of the other things are just, they would have been for the elite. So it, it's just important to, to know as, as you're reading these things, some of them are not like common stories perhaps, but, um, but some of them were, and, and it's kind of neat to think about that as well as just, uh, maybe students in, in, um, kind of learning or, or copying some of these texts three, 4,000 years ago. Uh, it's just such a, a cool thing when you, when you're reading these. And also just to, to know as well that, that, um, we, we started learning, uh, and being able to decipher the hieroglyphics within 200 years. So we, we haven't had this for, for a long, you know, there's a long period where, where, uh, people were not 
not reading these these texts. So it's kind of neat that they're in a way being rediscovered. Uh, Egypt was a very bureaucratic nation uh, that comes up over and over in these in these writings. So uh, just a very centralized, very uh, strong government, very strong um, power structure. And, you know, things things went according to to plan in, in that sense. And you, you see that because in, as you're viewing artwork over this, this, this span, as you're viewing the what's found in tombs, and you're seeing the consistency over all these years, it, it's, it's really astounding. One other thing I want to point out here is that there is not a single named ancient Egyptian writer with an attributed body of work. So that, that's also quite interesting. Uh, the, 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 the individual kind of got erased from anything that was, that was written. Um, I mean, some, some of the stuff, it was like letters and stuff. It, it would, it would obviously have a name attached to it, but, um, just in terms of like main stories, like we've got these tales, we've got these stories that, that are in these books, but, uh, they're not, they're not attributed to, to a, an individual, a, a, a named ancient Egyptian writer. So taking a step back, just some top-level takeaways from reading these, these seven books about Egypt. One I, I hinted to is just the longevity and the stability of, of that civilization, of 3,000 years of, of uh, rule by, by pharaohs. And, and yes, there were, there were a lot of um, changes during that time, uh, but the, the level of consist- consistency is, is, is amazing. And, and just to, I mean... I live in a country that's that's a few hundred years old. Um, I look at art and how art has changed just in the last fifty years, much less two hundred or five hundred. Uh, but you're talking about a span of three thousand years, and and a lot of the art you see, it kind of maintains the same thing. Like people are drawing the same way, they're they're drawing in the same manner. Uh, things are portrayed in the same way. Uh, yes, there were that. That's a very broad paintbrush I'm using there, but but. Uh, so there would have been slight change, but like just the, the consistency was in stability and longevity was, was incredible. Second thing is just the sophistication of the beliefs and then the ramifications for those. I mean, we, we see the pyramids today when, when you read about what the pyramids entailed, what, what that, what the belief behind making those pyramids is is mind-blowing it's it's just it's unbelievable and to, and to think this is i mean the the biggest pyramids we have are 4500 years ago like that's that's it's crazy it's 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 really interesting uh the third thing here is just especially with the art books I, it was fun because uh you start to notice certain signs or certain ways that that pharaohs are portrayed and and just with some basic knowledge you can look at artwork from egypt and and, and start getting a, a, a an idea of what's happening in in these paintings or these carvings and and that's that's just fun because now you know anytime i'm in a museum or see something I, i'll have a very base knowledge but it at least like something to work from and something to, to kind of move forward from. And, and so I can't wait. I, uh, later this year, I'll, I'll be in London. I'm going to make it to the British Museum. And I, I, I want to go to the Egypt section and just 
see see what what's in there and uh and that kind of thing so for the rest of this episode it'll it'll be a a few more segments so in the next segment i want to give a a quick overview of what i learned in the rise and fall of ancient egypt so just kind of a quick overview of some egyptian history and then in the uh the the segment after that i want to uh, cover what i'm calling a tremor in egyptian history so something that kind of rocked the boat a little bit. And then uh, in the last segment, I will cover the books that I read, just some some main takeaways from each of the books that I read, as well as, as kind of my main takeaway from my, my study of, of Egypt here. So for these seven books, uh, I like giving reading stats. These seven books, there were 2,141 pages total in these seven books. That took me 38 hours and 10 minutes of reading. It was an exact month, March 19 through April 19, and so that averaged about 14 pages per day. Next up, the rise and fall of ancient Egypt. Well, a friend of mine from high school, in 2008, he he called me up and he said, uh, do you want to go to Egypt? He said, uh, I'm going to be there and there's an opportunity for you to play the violin at at a conference if you would like to attend. I thought about it for about two seconds and, and said yes. And so I, w- I went to Egypt in 2008. It was a, probably a 10-day trip or so. And so part of it was at this conference, and then um, and then we had some time to, to travel around. So I went to the Great Pyramids of Giza. They're, they're right next to Cairo there. And what's funny is uh, you, you see the photos of, of the pyramids, and they look like they're in the middle of the, of the desert. But uh, it's, I mean, it, the the city of Cairo butts up pretty close to those those pyramids, and I mean, there, there's even like an, uh, when I was there, there was a McDonald's right, right right on the edge, and so, you know, if you look one way, you're looking at this huge city. If you turn around, you're looking at these these ginormous uh, pyramids, and and that was that was amazing seeing seeing the pyramids. Um, it's just so so fun, and, and they're just so, they're so huge. You, you, it's it's hard to even imagine. I mean, the the, the blocks are bigger than than taller than people. And, and it's just these blocks, uh, going way up into the sky. And then I also took a trip to, to Luxor to see, uh, to see that area, the, the Valley of the Kings and, and, and that sort of thing. But, but while I was in Cairo, I, I had the chance to go to the, the Egyptian museum and that, that was amazing. Uh, unfortunately during the Arab spring, some of the works in there were 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 destroyed uh and and when i went uh there was there was like no security in there and i mean you the, the it was like a whole area of of king tut stuff and you could go right up to it i mean it was it was incredible and and even since i had been there they had they had increased security in in all that but it, it was pretty fun just walking through that that museum and, and seeing all those all those things uh so i i but i, I didn't read a lot before that trip uh, about egypt i didn't didn't know a whole lot and and so reading about it now was was such a was such a fun thing it makes me want to go back and and see see these things again with with kind of fresh eyes uh but i, I wanted to to just take this segment to to go over some of the history of of ancient Egypt, and just a quick, uh, broad overview, and maybe some of their, their beliefs, and and uh, just some some things that really stuck out to me. So first, just wanted to go through a, a, a quick timeline, because what we're talking about here is is from twenty nine fifty to to thirty BC, and so you've got these uh, dynasties that are that are happening, and and so at the very beginning of the rise and fall of ancient Egypt, Toby Wilkinson divides up these these different periods. So there's an early dynastic period, 
And then uh, there's what's called the Old Kingdom. And the start of the Old Kingdom is, is the start of the Fourth Dynasty. And in this Old Kingdom, this is when the, the Great Pyramids at Giza were built. And this is 2500 B.C., this is 4,500 years ago, though those pyramids are made. So that's Old Kingdom. That's when that starts. Then there's, a, there's what's called the First interme- Intermediate Period, and that's between the Old and the Middle Kingdom. So the Middle Kingdom starts in 2010 BC. That, then after that, there's a Second Intermediate Period. Then there's what's called the New Kingdom, and that's 1539. Um, we'll get into the 18th, 19th, and 20th dynasties then then we get into the third intermediate period after that we get into the late period which is when we start to see the the persians uh entering the the babylonians and um and then the persians are are coming after that uh we've got the macedonian dynasty so alexander the great after that the uh, ptolemaic period and that goes right up to Cleopatra, who is the last pharaoh of Egypt. So there's a, a quick uh, run through of, of just the different history. But uh, what, what this book does, the rise and fall of ancient Egypt, is to go through a lot of those different periods, talk about the pharaohs, uh, what, you know, what did they do that was different? What, what did they do that was international? Um, and then there's a lot of overlap in that timeline as well, where you've got uh, upper and lower Egypt which are, are flipped what would normally be in our mind. So lower Egypt is, is north, and then upper Egypt is, is south. Uh, but at some points, those are united. At other times, they're, they're, it's kind of two separate kingdoms. So some of these rulers would have been for one area, and so there would have been overlap in that. But, uh, but there's also some periods where, uh, where the ruler is over, the pharaoh is over both of those areas. So ne- next up, I wanted to go in quickly. Just what what did what did the Egyptians think about death in in the afterlife and and all that? So here's um here's the a, a paragraph in a chapter called Paradise Postponed. Ancient Egypt seems to have been a civilization obsessed with death. From pyramids to mummies, most of the hallmarks of Egyptian culture are connected with funerary customs. Yet if we look more closely, it is not death itself that lay at the heart of the Egyptians' preoccupations, but rather the means of overcoming it. Pyramids were designed as a resurrection machine for Egyptian kings. Mummies were created to provide permanent homes for the undying spirits of the dead. And if mortuary beliefs and grave goods dominate modern views of ancient Egypt, it is only perhaps because cemeteries located on the desert edge have survived rather better than towns and villages on the floodplain. Tombs have provided generations of archaeologists with rich and relatively easy pickings. Uh, And and I'll I'll end the, the quote there. Uh, one, one final thing, proper preparation for the next world was deemed an essential task if death was not to bring about utter annihilation. End quote. So, so these pyramids that were, that were built, um, they, they were what, what, uh, what the author here calls resurrection machines for, for Egyptian Kings. And you just look at what was in these, these tombs and, 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 and then you think of the beliefs that, that were required to to make these uh that that the pharaoh would have had all of these things in the afterlife with him and so uh in some cases he's buried with his entourage you know so kind of like in the gilgamesh episode where i talked about gilgamesh's uh entourage and in his the the actual gilgamesh uh his entourage would have been killed 
when he died so that they could all kind of join him in the in the afterlife uh same thing with some of the of the pharaohs but then just in especially in king tut's tomb you've got all these materials that he's to have with him in in the life but then you in in the next life but then you've also got all these drawings of like what he's supposed to do and and uh and it's just it's astounding but but you think of what the beliefs are required to to make that make sense it's 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 a really interesting study next up is just uh the wealth that is is was in egypt so what what was the wealth based on and uh toby wilkinson says egypt's famed wealth had always been based upon its agricultural productivity so the, the agri- agriculture was the the foundation of of egypt and and it was the everyday labor laborer who was who was getting this you know or you know was creating this this wealth um and for for this kind of elite class that uh of of pharaohs that um that that really benefited from it next up uh as as a, a avid reader i love learning about the great library of alexandria so let me just read a few sections or a few parts here in its heyday the great library numbered a half a million papyrus rolls representing the sum total of knowledge in every field of inquiry the wealth of its written holdings was matched only by its glittering array of scholarly talent as successive directors of the library gathered about them an astonishing array of visiting academics there were one or two egyptians notably manetho a priest and who was commissioned to write a history of Egypt, but the mass, vast majority of Alexandria's intellectuals came from across the Greek world. Euclid, the founder of geometry, was brought from the Platonic school in Athens. Uh, Archimedes, Aristarchus, uh, some other some other names here. And then I, I, I won't skip to the end here. While the court poet. Callimachus compiled a painstaking catalog of books in the Great Library, laying the foundations for the survival of Greek learning into later antiquity and beyond, end quote. So there's a, there's a whole section there about the library, and it's just, it's it's astonishing. Uh, I started this year reading straight through the Bible, and so I, 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 I always, I, you know, I'll do that for each year of this great books project, so it's, it's always on my mind. And so I, I'm I'm interested whenever I, I see some sort of a connection. So let me talk about the 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 potential connection with with the book of, of Exodus here. Uh, with it, uh, this is page three thirteen in a chapter called War and Peace. With its geographic proximity to Palestine, Per Ramses must have been a magnet for immigrants seeking a better life, and it is against such a background that the Bible story of the Exodus came to be written. Exodus 1.11 tells how Pharaoh put the enslaved Hebrews to work on two great store cities, Pithom and Ramses. Pithom, or Per Atom, has been identified as modern Tel El Mascuta in the eastern delta, only a day's journey from Per Ramses, while Ramses can be none other than the new dynastic capital itself. It is highly like it is highly likely that Semitic-speaking laborers were employed in the construction of the city, but they were more likely migrant workers rather than slaves. Although the working conditions may have been made the distinction somewhat academic. As for any exodus of Hebrews in the reign of Ramses II or later, the ancient Egyptian sources are silent. The story may therefore have been a conflation of several unrelated historical events. On the other hand, as we have seen, Ramses was not wanted to let the truth stand in the way of his news agenda. 
agenda, end quote. And so that's one, that's one thing that comes up quite a bit is just, you know, if, if something bad did happen in, in Egyptian history, it was not going to be written about. There was this, this deep belief that to keep the life of something, you wrote it down. And so that's, that's why you have names written down and, and, and you know, carved in, in stone and that sort of thing. Uh, th- that was to, to keep that person keep that person alive in, in some sense. And so when, when you wanted to get rid of, of somebody, you know, even after they were dead, if you wanted to get rid of their memory, what, what you would do is just go, you'd go around to the tombs and all that and, and scratch out their name. And, and this was done quite often if, if you wanted to, to kind of remove somebody from history. So it's another interesting things that archaeologists come across now is, is these, these artifacts where, where names are just crossed out and, and that sort of thing. So uh, you get you get some insight into the history there of, of <clears throat> perhaps somebody was popular at one point and then uh, became person, persona non grata at another point. And then maybe they were uh, deemed good again. And, and so their name would be added back on there. So uh, just a lot of fun, fun history there. So those are some of the things that stuck out in the rise and fall of ancient Egypt. Again, I, I highly recommend this one if, if you are interested in, in learning more about the history of Egypt. Well, I said before that one of the things that stuck out to me is just the, the consistency, the relative consistency of this 3,000 years of history. And I know anyone with any knowledge whatsoever of Egypt probably uh, would hear that statement and, and think it's the most absurd thing they've they've ever heard because they'll, they'll know all the intricacies of, of how things did change and how artwork and beliefs and, and all that. But if, if we just do a straight up comparison between like our culture and Egyptian culture, uh, just think about art for the last 200 years and how much it has changed. Like the Impressionists to Jackson Pollock, like that is a major shift and that's 200 years. You look at art from Egypt and and it's relatively staying the same in in the sense of like, this is how people are portrayed. Like you, you don't, you don't really see people looking at you other if, unless it's a statue. Um, so people are always presented sideways in in the in the artwork, and yes, there there are cases where that's that's not that's not how it's presented. But just in general, I'm talking very 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 general here. You you've got these, you've got these beliefs. You've got these beliefs about the afterlife. You have beliefs about the gods. The gods stay pretty consistent through these the these years, um, and 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 so there's that that just stuck out it was so incredible for that amount of time i mean can you do you think of any other culture that's been around that many years and that was pretty much consistent in, in how it was run in terms of there being a pharaoh and uh very bureaucratic and all that uh it, it's 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 astonishing and i know there's that i know saying that's very there's problems with saying that but but just take it for kind of the the general level Along comes this pharaoh in 1375 BC, and he upends everything. He upends every belief. The art changes, the way the pharaohs are presented, and statues changes. There, there is a there. You don't have mummies anymore. There's no more spells. There's no more awakening of the dead to new life. They are erasing names of gods in the the tombs and all sorts of things. And and it comes it. it he introduces monotheism in the sense that there is a God, Aten, and, and, and that is the God who is worshipped. And it, it's one God. All the other gods, let's get rid of them. 
I mean, can you imagine what that would have been like where you've got this relative consistency and this guy just comes in and upends everything? It was so startling that pretty soon after he dies, they go back to how it was. Egypt shifts back rather quickly. It goes back to, you know, no, we have these gods. This is how things are set up. Uh, it, it it goes it goes back rather quickly, and and his successor was King Tut, uh, Tutankhamun. So we we know his successor from his famous from his famous tomb. So this this is the person immediately immediately before him. Uh, King Tut was the his first name was uh, King uh, Tutankhaten. Uh, so Aten at the end, but he changed it back to Amen at the end um, to to go back to the to the way things the, things were. So. Just a few um, uh, of the beliefs and things that happened during uh, Akhenaten's reign, starting in 1375 BC. Uh, so here's here's a part. The the Aden was actually not the sun disk, but rather the light that is in the sun, in which radiating from it calls the world to life and keeps it alive. End quote. So um, Aten is, is sometimes called the sun god, but but it's actually the light that emanates from the sun. And so if you see, if you see artwork and you, and you see kind of this disc in, in Egyptian artwork, and then all these rays of light emanating from that disc. And at the end of the rays, there's hands on each of those rays. That's Aten. That's, that's this light God. And so if you, if you think about what that entails, uh, when the sun comes up, the light permeates everything. And so that that would even go into the architecture of what Akhenaten does is is all the buildings are open. There there's no roofs. And so whenever you're in these buildings, uh, the light is always there. It is always, it's always reaching you. And and so the pharaoh is kind of trying to to imitate that that that's what he's like to his people. He's always there. He's he's providing the light. So culture goes from believing you know there's the god Osiris. There's there's these different gods. To, to going to one God. So there, monotheism is introduced. And again, Egypt is not a monotheistic culture at all. And this guy comes in and, and hey, Aten is the God and he's who we're going to worship. Um, the author of this book, Eric Hornung, he, he, he makes this statement about Akhenaten. He says he is the world's first idealist and the world's first individual. Um, next up, what this entailed in history is that now there would be no gods but Aten, and the physical existence of the old deities would be obliterated by the erasure of their names and sometimes of their representations as well. End quote. Uh, this later on, he says, even the tips of the obelisks. So uh, I guess they would climb up to the top of the obelisk. Somebody wouldn't and cross out the names of the deities of the of the gods on top of that. So that that's the kind of thing this means. Like when when this pharaoh is putting these ideas forward, it's not just hey, you know, you, you should you should believe this. It's uh, no, we're going to get rid of the other god. We're going to get rid of the names written. We're going to we're going to erase this. This is how things are going from now on. You just imagine uh, a, a culture so deeply ingrained in one way of thinking being confronted with this must have just been uh must have just been so startling um here's uh of of the afterlife so the awakening of the dead to new life was no longer accomplished nocturnally in the netherworld but in the morning in the light of the rising sun 
and at the same time as those still alive, and was now oriented towards the East, uh, end quote. So throughout all these all these things that I was reading about Egypt, the, the West is 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 the the land of the dead and 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 you would even see that in how um how some of the the major cities were set up to where on the east side of the nile you'd have that that's where people lived and then on the west side were were the tombs um but just the the idea is that the west that is the land of the dead and i mean that's one of the things he shifts that's how big this shift was it it went from the beautiful west up to the realm realm of the dead and, and that that even shifted now the realm of the dead is in the east i mean just a just a total shift of everything that that is that is is believed uh there's no more spells so read this all the spells that had previously been needed for orientation supplies and protection in the fields of the hereafter became unnecessary there was no book of the dead in the actual amarna period just as the royal books of the netherworld were no longer used uh the temple and palace were indeed the new realm of the dead, one located in this world. End quote. So, so now the the, the netherworld's not this this place separate, but it's it's amongst us. It's 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 in in the temple. It's, it's where the people the people who are still living. It's where they are. The the uh, the dead are now among those people. Um, so again, just, just these shifts in, in thinking. Um, um, uh, since only daytime existence. In, in the light of Aten counted now, a mummy was in fact unnecessary, and regeneration of the body in the afterlife no longer played a role. End quote. So mummy, mummies are gone. Uh, last thing I want to highlight here is just that, or two, two more things, that uh, there's a hymn that is attributed to Aten, uh, but it's attributed to Akhenaten that, that uh, it he's even the potential author uh, of this. It's, it's attributed to him, but um, there, there's some people that think that he actually may have even even written it, not, not just that it's attributed to him. And what's startling about this is there are some very similar lines to what what you will see in Psalm 104 in, in the Hebrew Bible. And so I'm going to read just a section of, of this, um, the great hymn to the to the Aten, uh, to all the, the great hymn to the orb, uh, is what it's also called. So, so I'm reading now from writings from ancient Egypt. And, um, here, here's one part. The earth is bright when you rise on the horizon and shine is orb of the daytime. You dispel the darkness when you send out your rays. The two lands are in festival, awake and standing on their feet, for you have raised them up. Their bodies are cleansed and clothed. Their arms are raised in adoration at your appearing. The whole earth sets out to work. So that's the great hymn of the orb. And let me now read from part of Psalm 104. He made the moon to mark the festivals. The sun knows when to set. You bring darkness and it becomes night. When all the forest animals stir, the young lions roar for their prey. They seek and seek their food from God. The sun rises, they go back and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until evening. Uh, the, there are just, if you read the whole hymn of the orb, there, there's a lot of connections like that uh, f- to Psalm 104. So it's kind of interesting just to, to think, me, you know, you wonder if, if um, there was some inspiration there or, or um, if, if some of those ideas uh, transferred there. But, but it ties back to this, this Pharaoh that, uh, that shifted everything. He, he went 
he went to monotheism for a while. Uh, Egypt did not like that. They went right back right after he was was gone. The other thing that's pointed out in this book is that uh, that that Akhenaten's was not a religion of the book, and so. Uh, you hear that the uh, Jewish Jewish people will be called the the people of the book, and so they've they've got the Hebrew Bible. There there's there's a book associated with the with the religion uh, with Christianity. That there's there's the Bible. There's a book associated with the religion. There was no such book with Akhenaten. He did not write any of this down. So uh, perhaps that's one reason it didn't last as long either. That it was not written down. It was. It was kind of his beliefs. He was he was trying to change things in that aspect, but but it, it was never never written down. So, just a fascinating thing again. Just uh, when you've got things moving in a straight line for such a long period of time, for this tremor to kind of come through, uh, it is is a really interesting study. So next up, the final segment here, I'll go into some of the other books that I read for this this uh, Egypt dive. I'll close out here going through four different other books about Egypt. And the, the first one here is, is an art book. And this one is, it's a, it's a Toshin book. And if you've seen these, they're, they're smaller books, but they, they are very heavy because it's, it's nice paper and, and you're, you're actually seeing the artwork inside. And so uh, how these books are often set, set up is that you'll have artwork on one side and then uh, descriptions on, on the other side. And they're, they're all, uh, all in color and just, you know, just beautiful books. And so I got this one. It's called Egyptian Art. And the, the, the artist is a Frenchman named uh, Persay. He has actually, actually has seven different names, so I'm not going to uh, try, <laughs> try to pronounce them. Uh, but this is, is, is a gorgeous book. And, and what, what he did is just travel around Egypt. This is the early 1800s. And he drew what, what he was seeing. And so the, these are... Uh, things from tombs, you know, he's, he's copying down the, the hieroglyphics uh, exactly as they are. Um, but but then there's these other color uh, drawings that he did of the inside of tombs. And the, these might just be like ceiling patterns or columns, like the columns are, are some of the most beautiful parts of this book. Uh, there's there's other like wall art or um, or drawings, or he'll draw statues. And what's what's neat is that some of these things have been destroyed since he he drew them and so we we would not have these were were it not for for his drawings um going through this book was i i would just get to some of these pages and just be amazed at the beauty the sophistication of egyptian culture uh the 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 just the astounding beauty of of columns like why make columns this beautiful i mean they they were made to look like flowers and that's one of the things that that is mentioned in this book is that uh the egypt this is a, a quote the egyptians copied nature and in her found inspiration to produce their most beautiful works of art the the other thing uh that's mentioned in this book is uh, about music and, and and it said the the egyptians considered music to be a branch of sacred knowledge and I thought that was cool. So a lot of the artwork, you, you'll see lotus flowers, and that symbolizes life and immortality. Uh, but lotus flowers would be worked into so many different things, like columns and uh, artwork. And there, there's co common color schemes through, through, throughout this, this artwork. Uh, and it just, it's, it, it was really beautiful. And so if, if you just want to get kind of an, a good overview of Egyptian art, I, 
this is a good place to start. These Toshin books are, are relatively cheap as well. It's like 20 or $25, but they are, I mean, solid books and just uh, a delight to go through. The other thing I, I found in going through Egyptian art is just you start you start to see some of the, th- the same things. And then with the descriptions along each work of art, you're, you're getting to learn what, what Egyptian art entailed and, and how they drew particular gods. And so, uh, so you can see how different deities and how they would have their hats. You see how, um, it's common to show a Pharaoh smiting his, his enemies. And so the Pharaoh would have this almost like a nail, uh, on, on the head of, of, a, of an enemy with a, with the other arm raised, uh, kind of with a hammer, you know, about to, to put down that hammer on, on this huge uh, nail type thing on onto the enemy. So to smite his enemy, um, you see the, the things that eat, that each Pharaoh would, would carry. Um, you, you see, you just start to notice these things. And so, so when, as you look at more of this artwork, things start to make sense. It starts to make sense why things are portrayed a, a certain way. And that's just a really fun thing to, to know and a useful tool to have if you walk into to pretty much any museum. Next up, I, I read uh, the book King Tut, The Journey Through the Underworld. And this is also a Toshin book. And so again, uh, you know, a lot of these are artworks. So they, the, the books themselves go, go pretty quickly. Uh, but there is a lot of information in, in these as well. And so the, the cover of this one is just the, the mask that we all know of, of King Tut, that, that beautiful golden mask. Um, and, and so you would, you would get the impression by just looking at this book that it's all about uh, King, King Tut's tomb, but that's not the case. This book it really goes more into Egyptian views of the afterlife. Uh, so you, you actually see what's in a lot of different tombs that, that have been discovered, um, a lot of different artwork. And so, yes, there is a strong emphasis on King Tut, uh, Tutankhamun, but, but you're also learning about um, Egyptian views of the afterlife, uh, in, in general. So want to, want to highlight a, a couple of those of those really quickly and, and just things I learned. And so, um, uh, first off King Tut's tomb was discovered on November 4, 1922. So uh, almost exactly a uh, hundred years ago. And, um, the Egyptians, they believed that death was the pathway to eternal life. It was the doorway to eternal life. And I, I don't, I, I think in the past, I, I always just had in my mind that the pyramids were built after the Pharaoh's death. It, it was like, it, it was like his grave, but that's not the case at all. Like, I mean, uh, they would start building those like pretty much close to the time that the Pharaoh started ruling. Like this, this was such a deeply ingrained thing. Like that was, that was going to be his main thing. And, and, and it's, it's because their view of death, it was the pathway to eternal life. It was the doorway to eternal life. Uh, the Egyptians believed that the heart was the seat of the soul, that it remained in the body so that it could be reanimated after resurrection. So, so when you, when you, uh, when they find these, uh, mummified bodies, uh, the, the, the main organs would be removed. Uh, I mean, the brain would be removed and, and the, the, uh, internal organs, but the heart would remain in there in, in that mummified body because they believed that it would be reanimated after resurrections, uh, after resurrection. So they would have uh, jars for the, the other organs. And so they would be in the tomb with, 
with uh, the deceased, but the heart would actually remain in, in the body. And they believe the heart was the center of wisdom and knowledge. And, and just kind of interesting because we, we think of wisdom and knowledge as, as being in the brain. They would remove the brain uh, to them. That was all right there in, in the heart. And then they also believe that the flesh of the gods was gold. So the flesh of the gods in the, the afterlife was gold. And so, you know, we have this famous mask of, of King Tut and it's gold and it's just, it's, it's startling. I mean, it's just so beautiful. And they, uh, the reason they did that is they believed the flesh of the gods was gold. So, uh, that's why the masks were gold. They were, you know, almost just kind of preparing the way for, for, uh, the Pharaoh into the, into the afterlife. Uh, Let's see, let me read from The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt as I introduce the, the final two books here. Because The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt has this section where, where he talks about some of the, the different main works that came out of Egypt. So uh, a lot of what I, I ended up reading is contained in this paragraph here. So amid the chaos, however, Egypt witnessed a second great cultural flowering. The Middle Kingdom was the golden age of literature when many of the great classics were composed, from the heroic tale of Sinue to the rollicking yarn of the shipwrecked sailor, from the overly overtly propagandistic prophecies of Neferti to the subtle rhetoric of the eloquent peasant, and from the metaphysical dispute between a man and his soul to, to the burlesque satire of the trades. The literary, literary output of the Middle Kingdom reveals ancient Egyptian society at its most complex and sophisticated, end quote. So that, that's kind of an intro into some of the final books I read here. So uh, second to last is The Tale of Sinue, and uh, this, this is in, in Oxford World's Classics, book. And so it's the tale of Sanu is the main tale, but then it also says in other ancient Egyptian poems from 1940 to 1640 BC. And so uh, I, I bought this one specifically for the tale of Sanu. It was mentioned quite a bit in the rise and fall of ancient Egypt. And it was mentioned in uh, Akhenaten in the religion of light as well. So this is kind of a late, a late edition, but I, I wanted to read this story just because it was mentioned so many, so many times. So this tale, it's, it's a tale of a man with, with wanderlust. And so he travels away from Egypt and has many adventures along the way, uh, and then returns to Egypt later on. And, and part of what's revealed here is just the, the Egyptian belief that, uh, that Egypt was the place like, uh, if, if you left Egypt, you would, there would be the strong desire to come back. There was a strong desire not to die in another country, but to be, to be buried in, in Egypt. So some of those things happen, or, or you see those ideas uh, in, in this tale, uh, but it's just a, a, a fun and, and exciting tale as well. The next one, uh, so I, I just kind of picked out a few others that uh, sounded either sounded interesting or that I had heard uh, or read about in, in some of these other other books. And so the next one was the tale of the eloquent peasant. And so this, this is a, a story of a man who, who has been wronged and he's pleading his case before the high steward. And let me just read a, a, a small part of this. Um, the eloquent peasant is very eloquent in, in his arguments for why he, you know, in, in his pleading of his case is, uh, is really interesting reading. So let me just read one part here. And, and this is him talking to the, the, the high steward, the person he's trying to get to, to take his cause and, and to, to help him. 
Stretch out to act. Now your eyes are opened. Inform the heart. Be not harsh because you are powerful, so that evil may not reach you. Pass over a misdeed, and it will be two. End quote. I, I just loved that. Pass over a misdeed, and it will be two. So it'll be two misdeeds. Final two uh, stories that I read from this, this book were The Tale of the Shipwrecked Sailor and then The Dialogue of a Man and His Soul. And that one will oftentimes be called The Dialogue of a Man and His Ba. So Ba is, is, um, uh, has some, some uh, ideas of, of what we think of as, as soul. And that's just a really neat one. It's, it's a man kind of having an a, a argument with, with his soul. And, and uh, it's, so that, that one is good. The Tale of the Shipwrecked Sailor, uh, an, another uh, fun story. And again, these are all very short stories. I mean, as, as I'm reading them, I'm just thinking, I just need to take this book upstairs and, and um, read some of these to my, my daughters at night. Uh, they're, they're short enough to be bedtime stories, but they're, they're very interesting. And just to, to think that people have been reading these for three, four, 5,000 years uh, or, or hearing them uh, is, is just kind of a neat thing. So the last one I got is Ancient Egyptian Literature, the Late Period. Uh, and this is translated by Miriam uh, Lick, Lickthym. And this is volume three. So there's, there's three volumes of this ancient Egyptian literature. And uh, so the, one of the translations of Gilgamesh I read was by Sophus Hell. And he, uh, I, I was just um, going back and forth a little with him on, on uh, Twitter. And he suggested this story. He said this was one of his favorite stories. And it's called The Stories of Setne Kamwas. Uh, and so... This is just one of the stories in this book, but I but I had to to buy this whole book to get to get this story, and uh, this this is a very sophisticated story. Uh, it has a fantastic ending, a very surprising ending, and so I won't give that away. But um, but this was this was a very fun story to read, and so uh, if if you get that ancient Egyptian literature, the late period, volume three, um, I, I recommend reading that story. So if I'm to, to take a step back here and think of my main takeaway uh, of, of reading and learning about Egypt, so reading, reading some of the writings that came from Egypt and then, and then learning about Egypt itself, I, I, it would have to be that, that relative consistency through all that period of, of history. Um, and, and it really comes... It really comes strong when when you start looking at the artwork and the what's inside the tombs and how things are portrayed, and just to think of when when this Akhenaten came along and he he changed how pharaohs were portrayed in statue. That's when it really hit home to me. Is like, okay, this was such a shock, and and, and you know, archaeologists can tell immediately when it's a statue of Akhenaten because it was so radically different from what had been before that. Uh, the artwork is different. The, the belief system was different. And so you, you really come to understand, at least I did, uh, part of what a shift that was when that, that Akhenaten Pharaoh came along and just kind of upended everything and just how that all got kind of swallowed away right, right back to how things were before that. And there, yes, you can see traces. You can see that, that shift in artwork, uh, it had ramifications later on and that shift in belief that, that had other ramifications and maybe not just even in Egypt, but, but, uh, worldwide in, in ideas and in that, 
that sort of thing. So that's kind of my main takeaway. And, 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 and it was a fun, a fun thing to consider, uh, especially in reading the book about Akhenaten. So to recap, I, I got bit by the Egypt bug. Uh, this was an absolutely fascinating past month learning about the ancient culture of, of Egypt. I was amazed at how much we, we know. I mean, how much has been pieced together just from tombs and from artifacts and, and, and all these things, like just how much we actually know about what happened and, and who was leading and what they were doing. And yes, there are a ton of holes. There are so many things we don't know. Uh, and, and, you know, almost everything we do know is about the top person or the top few people, uh, completely, uh, neglecting the, the whole, the rest of society. Uh, so yes, it's, it's a very, you're learning about a certain aspect of Egyptian history, but, uh, but, Nonetheless, I, I didn't realize we had this much information. I guess if I'm c- to compare this to the uh, to the first book of the Great Books Project, Gilgamesh, I would I would have to give the the cake to to Gilgamesh. Uh, I did I did not come across anything that that was that that was that good in this Egyptian list. Uh, but I I didn't read all of of what is available in ancient Egyptian writing as well. But uh, Gilgamesh was just such a, uh, an amazing and sophisticated story. Um, there was a lot of sophistication in, in these stories of, of Egyptian writing as well. Uh, but if, if I had to compare the two, I'd, I'd have to go with Gilgamesh as the, as the winner so far. Uh, if you plan to read the writings of ancient Egypt or look into its architecture or, or art, please read uh, The Rise and Fall of Ancient Egypt first or some other book that covers that kind of a broad overall history of Egyptian history that that will just put help you put things into context. Um, I, I actually had started the Egyptian art book and then just stopped it and read the rise and fall of ancient Egypt and then went back to it just so I could say like, you know, this is uh this is artwork from this period, or this is, this is a statue of this Pharaoh, just kind of having that broad overview helped place the artwork and then what was happening, what, what it was about and, and all that. So, um, whereas for this great books project, what I'm, I'm going to try to read the great book first before I read the guidebook or the ancillary book. In this case, this is, this is one of those where I, I, w- I would, I would switch those around if I, if I were to do it again. Um, and, and it was also funny reading through that, that, that art book and the author would make comments like, you know, people think this originated in Greece, but here it is in, in, uh, Egypt, you know, th- uh, a thousand years before it, it ever showed up in Greece. And so in the study of Egypt, you, 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 see that you see the influence and, uh, you, you see this culture and, and how much, uh, how, how big of an impact it, it had. If you if you read the stories, just know that they are very short, and so you can get them you can get through them them quickly. Um, but they are very interesting, and just to to consider and ponder that students would have learned or heard these stories, uh, maybe copied them down if they were if they were part of the uh, the elite, you know, kind of learning uh, language and writing and all that. That and and this for three, four, five thousand years is just is is mind boggling. Uh, the fact that we still have them is, is amazing and, and we should take advantage of that and, and read them. 
that's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. Uh, I'd love to hear from you, especially if you also have the the Egypt bug, if uh, this is a fascination for you. Uh, tell me what I got wrong. Uh, tell me other books that that uh, you recommend that I that I read. Uh, and and forgive me for that that very broad uh, statement that uh, that there was a lot of consistency consistency in Egypt because I know I know a deeper dive would 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 prove that wrong. Uh, but, but I, I think kind of at a top level there, there was a, a certain consistency that, that, um, that is, is quite foreign to us these days. Um, I'll be back in a couple weeks and I'll probably be talking about in Hedwana and this, so I, <laughs> when I started the Great Books Project, I thought that Gilgamesh was the first book that we that we had, and the date given on that one was was roughly twenty one hundred BC. Well, another book just came out, and Hedwana, and it was uh, translated by Sophus Hell, who 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 translated one of the uh, Gilgamesh versions I read, and so now I have to shift things, and there is a new book one for the Great Books Project, and it is Edwan Ed, Ed Hedwanu. Ed Hedwana, and it was a female author. The very first work attributed to an individual author that we now have was by a female in 2300 BC in in Ur, in the city that uh, Abram from from the Bible came from, uh, the city of Ur. So very cool. Can't wait to read that. I'm I'm actually going to start that tonight, and uh, so that'll probably be next episode. Thanks for listening. Uh, you can you can find me on Instagram or Twitter at Books of Titans and go to the Books of Titans website as well, just booksoftitans.com. You can see my reading list, uh, see see what I've got coming up and all that. I would love for you to join me. I've, I've kind of been lax this year in, in um, advising what's, what's coming up, but um, I, I do plan to have some other uh, uh, online reading groups with some of the, the upcoming upcoming books. So I hope you will join. Just uh, sign up for the newsletter on the website. That's the best way to keep informed on that. So I'll be back in a couple weeks. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out. (laughs) 